Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 475 of the Survival Podcast. And what are we going to talk about today? Those of you guys that are into the uh, Hollywood disasters, as I call them, the big ones, the ones that really would try us as a people, You're going to like today because we're going to go into um, five of them. We're going to talk about what I think it would look like, what the consequences would be of five major disasters. Those are going to be pandemic, a second Great Depression, and those that you think, the view that think we're there now are you're not even close, a solar storm that takes out the electrical grid, uh, a global food shortage, and we'll talk about why that would happen, and the realization of actual peak oil, real peak oil. Before we do that, though, we're going to go ahead and uh, take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one. Uh, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here five days a week, Monday through Friday, for about an hour a day. Sponsor of the day number one, the Survival Seed Bank from Solutions from Science. What is a seed bank? Is it a bunch of seeds you're going to go out and plant tomorrow? Nope. Uh, you could, but that's not what I would do with it. A seed bank is, just like you buy mountain house or providing pantry or other long-term storage foods, it is a long-term storage uh, for seeds so that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, etc., the seeds will be available to you to plant and you know that they'll be viable. So check out the Survival Seed Bank. Uh, next up today is silverandgoldshop.com, run by the exceptional and wonderful, in the words of the audience itself, Mary Beth Maidmont. Uh, a great selection of silver and gold products that you can add to your portfolio. A lot of her rounds I have given to my nieces and nephews and things like that. And when I first brought up the idea for birthdays and things like that, my wife was like, you know, they're kids, they want toys. But you know what? When we handed them those things, they bounced and uh, I know I put something of value instead of a toy into their hand that they'll be done with in a few months and it'll be going to goodwill. Uh, something they can actually hold on to and have real value throughout their life with. So, check out silverandgoldshop.com. Remember, I believe that silver and or gold should make up somewhere between 5 and 10% of your savings. Uh, not 100, not 50, not even 25, but 5% is a good hedge to make sure that you're playing all sides of the bases, so to speak. Uh, next up, check out our gear shop. We have a lot of really great stuff. Everything I've seen uh, so far is that I think everybody probably has their uh, their tumbler mugs by now, their French Pest tumbler mugs. If you don't have one, if you didn't order one early uh, when we had them at a big discount, get one now, man. These things are awesome. I'm drinking a steaming hot cup of coffee made with some Starbucks espresso roast that I just made my French Pest tumbler. Check it out. Make sure you check out the challenge coins as well. I think we're running low on those, so you might want to get one while you can if they're still available. Uh, before we do another run. And we've got some really cool stuff coming to the gear shop. Actually, we're going to have a redesign. I talked to Sis uh, Wolf today uh, by email, and we're going to be redesigning it and putting some new features into it for you guys so that you'll be made aware of new products and things like that if you want to be. 
Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Discounts from 21 vendors. And I want to tell you, like, sometimes things go wrong. If they do, let me know. Um, the code for getting 7% off Shelf Reliance recently expired. That's because we have a great rep with Shelf Reliance named Sarah, but she had a wonderful experience called a baby. And she was out on maternity leave, and you know both sides dropped the ball a little bit, and the code expired. But I was made aware that the code expired, and less than 24 hours it was reinitiated. So uh, if you ever try to use a code and it doesn't work, let me know. We'll square it away, and we'll make it right. Um, and that's part of the MSB. It's not just you supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. It's not just a bunch of great stuff. I try to give you guys badass customer support as an MSB member, uh, if you have anything there. One thing I want to restate, because I think this gets confused. Your MSB membership and login will not work on our forum. The forum is one thing. The MSB is another thing. Just so you know, just saying. Because uh, I had people try to log into the blog, which you can't even do. And I've had people try to log into the forum using their MSB and wondering why it won't work. Ain't never going to work. All right. Um, last, I want to ask real quick, if you guys out there that are on Twitter, follow me. i got like a couple thousand of you guys. Please consider going by the blog once in a while and just retweeting an episode when you think it's good. Um, the more retweets I get, the more exposure I get. That's good for the show, and I appreciate it every time somebody does it. I've made it easy for you, man. All you got to do is click a button, and as long as you have a Twitter account, boom. And if you don't have a Twitter account, hey, man, get a Twitter account and uh, follow the Survival Pod C on uh, Twitter. Again, our Twitter handle, the Survival Pod C, because I couldn't do the Survival Podcast. They didn't let me have that many letters. All right, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I want to go through these scenarios, and I want to look for two. Yesterday, we talked about commonality. So as I go through them, I want to look. I want you to look for the commonalities. What I think you'll see is drastically different lifestyles, but very common needs as we go through them. So I thought it dovetailed well into yesterday's episode. And I also think that anybody that's into survivalism, come on, we, we like to watch the documentaries about the end of the ages and the end of the earth. And there's some level of fascination in it for us. I don't think we want it. I don't think we long for it. But I, I do think that we have some level of, a, I don't know, a uh, just a desire to think uh, that way, uh, and to, to examine the human condition, where it might go. And I don't think it's kind of a fatalistic thing for us. I think it's more of, um, I think that survivalists, real survivalists, not the uh, the whack jobs, um, we believe in human humanity. We believe in human beings. We believe in the strength of our fellow man. And we look at these scenarios not so much with a fatalistic, hey, we're all screwed viewpoint, but how will we get through it? I think that's what we really want to know. Um, how will we survive as a people, as a race? How will we? How will cultures survive it? So let's look at that today as well. And let's start out with, and I don't really have these in any particular order, but if you asked me of the five I'm going to discuss today, the one that I think is absolutely, positively inevitable, and peak oil is inevitable as well, but... It, depending on how long it takes, its consequences can be really severe or not that severe. We'll get to that. But the one that I think we will deal with, and no matter how far we come as a, as a, as a techno, you know, with technology and things like that, the one that's going to kick our ass sooner or later is going to be disease pandemic. There's, you know, all everything else has kind of technology that we can use over time to mitigate it. We can even get at some point our grid to be so so strong that it would be unlikely to be shut down by a solar storm. 
uh, or even an EMP attack. That can happen. It's not going to happen in the next 50 years, but it can happen. And if we don't have a solar storm that's bad for, you know, 500 years, we're good there, right? So, pandemic, though, no matter what vaccine we make, viruses can mutate. No matter what we do for our immune systems, new threats can evolve. What we have to understand about disease and the life cycle of something like a virus or bacteria is the speed at which it multiplies and the speed at which it can actually morph, change, and evolve. If we want to see the evolutionary process at work, it's something as simple as a dog and changing one feature of the dog with selective breeding We're talking five, six generations of work to really start to see the realization of the breeder's efforts. Assuming that we can breed our dogs healthily at about two years of age with a gestation period of about half a year, we look at a generational period to go from a puppy to a grown dog to a second generation to a grown dog of about five years. Five years to get one generational uptick. So if we want to look forward, we're talking 10 years for four generations. Okay, Human beings, you're looking at 30 years average. Uh, in fact, you're actually looking at uh, more along the lines of, let's say, to having another adult, you know, 60 years. The average age, you could do it. Kids are having kids all the time in their teens, unfortunately. But let's call it 50 years uh, per generation, all right? That's not how long we live. That's how long it takes for the next generation to be up and be in control, doing things, 20-somethings, right? So it takes a long time for, let's say, 100 generations of human beings. It's hard for us to even track back 100 generations. 100 generations for a virus can be a matter of hours. And every time a new virus is born, it matures and replicates There's a potential for a genetic leap. And because of that, we're in a situation where we have to think about it like this. We are more powerful than the diseases, illnesses, and viruses of the world in general. On any given day, between our immune systems and our technologies, more people live than die. More people are healthy than ill. There are horrible places in the world where people don't have sanitation and modern conveniences and diseases a lot more rampant. But in general, as a race, we've done a pretty damn good job at kicking the ass out of diseases. So they're on the ropes. But they never go down. They never get beat. They never get tired. And all they need is one good day. That's it. One day where they get the upper hand. And even if we come up with a vaccine, even if we come up with a treatment, six to 12 months later, the damage is already done. And the damage is more than the loss of life. So let me tell you what I think it would be like if a new virus, I'm not going to say flu, because it could be flu, it could be anything. Flu is a good candidate. But a new virus pops up in some part of the world, doesn't even matter where, And at first, medical science isn't even really sure what it is. A couple people get infected. They have the, the, the phenomena they call patient zero. The first human that they identified that had this virus or disease. As this virus spreads, it would spread maybe a little bit slowly at first. By the time they realize what they're, they're looking for patient zero, there would probably be an infection of 
a couple hundred people at minimum. If this is a you know a easily easily transmitted, highly contagious virus, and that's what we're talking about, something that easily transmits as easily as the cold or the flu from one person to another. So by the time they start to try to contain this, odds are it's out. Now, does that mean it can't be contained? No, SARS was contained. We got lucky with SARS. I don't think people know how lucky we got with SARS. We still don't even really understand what SARS really is. So it has the potential to go. The only reason it didn't go pandemic is we got lucky and we were able to contain it because as bad as it was, it didn't have quite the transmittability that we believed it to in the beginning. If it was highly transmittable, we probably would have never contained it. So this virus gets out. It's not contained. It spreads the way the swine flu did in numbers, but with a lot more severe consequences of death and sickness. It starts to spread. It's in two countries, four, eight, 16. Now the world is in panic. The World Health Organization begins to show the incompetence, and every politician on the planet comes out and tells us what? Cover our coughs and sneezes and wash our hands. And we hear that over and over and over again. And at that point is when we start to realize that, let's say, 10% of the infected people with this virus are dying. That's a pretty high lethality rate. It's higher than you might think. The consequences are much greater than you might think it is. You know, we're all thinking the big pandemic is the one that kills, you know, 90% of the people that get it. 10% is massive. The pandemic that went around, or the Spanish flu in 1918, I think it had a lethality rate of 1.5%, and it killed a half a million people in the United States. There's a lot more people here now, and we're a lot more mobile. 1.5%. So what does 10% add up to then? So what happens as this thing begins to spread Eventually, countries begin to seal borders and uh, confine people and quarantine, and you know what? It's too late. By the time they start to do that, it's too late. It will spread, and some people will violate quarantine and move, and they will take it with them wherever they go. And it's already in pockets everywhere. It's, it, it slows it down. It, that's all it will do is slow the progression. It will be... Somewhere in the neighborhood of a global death toll of about 50,000, that the stark reality starts to come to bear for the average person. They start to realize that this thing is really dangerous, really lethal. And all of the stuff that happened with the swine flu will happen tenfold. No dust masks, flu masks, anything will be available anywhere. They will all be wiped out. Most people that buy them won't even know how to use them properly or what to do with them. They'll be like the poor stupid kid in Mexico I saw during the swine flu pandemic that was sitting holding a Pepsi Cola bottle, wearing a flu mask, who lifted his mask, drank from the flu bottle, and put the mask back on. That's the type of thing that will be going on. Eventually, people will start to get afraid and they won't go to work and they'll start to buckle down at home. And this is when the second half of the pandemic, the second part of the disaster will come. There'll be shortages of food. Grocery stores will start to um, limit how much you can buy. They'll say maybe you can only spend $100. So low-cost, highly storable food will be the first thing to go. Actually, milk and bread, because people are stupid, will be the first thing to go. And then rice, beans, and canned goods will begin to evaporate. Because you can buy a lot of them for a little. You'll see the stores start raising the prices on them. 
eventually the shortages will get very severe because no one will want to drive anywhere or go anywhere. So the drivers that drive the trucks, the people that run the ships, the the international commerce that gets a lot of the food to countries like ours will begin to be shut down. And people will be hungry and people will be holed up. And eventually it will pass. Whether we come up with a cure or not, it will pass. A lot of people will get very sick and die that could have fought the virus off because they're not prepared. So they will be underfed and undernourished in this time. So the lethality rate that should have been 10% will be more like 15%. But of those 5%, they will all be, that additional 5% will all be people that should have survived. It will destroy the United States economy. We'll talk about what a destroyed economy looks like later, so we won't do that now. But it will destroy the global economy. It will ruin uh, massive numbers of, of, of nations' economies temporarily. What will happen after it passes, after it subsides, you'll actually see a recovery, an economic recovery, a big one. Because there'll be so much work that has to be done. Unemployment would probably be just about destroyed globally in every industrialized nation. Because 10 to 15% of the people that got it are gone. Let's say the infection rate is 50%. 50% of those exposed get it. Let's say that the actual, like 25% of the people in any given nation um, got it. It's millions of people that are gone, that aren't there to do the work anymore. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying it's a reality. There's your pandemic. That's what it looks like. With a typical disease that comes in a wave and eventually passes, could last a year, could last a decade. I don't know how long it would last. Depends on whether or not we can develop an effective vaccine and treatment for it. Any type of medication that's remotely effective in treating it, if it's a flu, Tamiflu, for instance, will be scooped up and used by people that shouldn't use it. Uh, in fact, something like Tamiflu will probably be made completely ineffective within six months of a pandemic flu because the flu adapts to, pan to Tamiflu very, very quickly, very, I mean, like lightning. It works great, and then it just adapts around it. And uh, that's, that's what I think we're in store for with a pandemic. Nice, huh? Um, let's look at a second Great Depression. What would a second Great Depression look like? Let's first off start off with something that I think the media is doing to America that just makes me want to punch every reporter I can find in the face. And when I get done with that, I want to line up every politician I can find that's taking part in this, and I want to punch them in the face too. In fact, maybe we should punch the politicians in the face first. Because the reporters are mostly parroting the politicians. And the statement that drives me crazy is, And you've heard it over and over again. I almost cringe to say it. This is the worst economic disaster since the Great Depression. Now, is that true? Probably. I actually think that the stagflation we experienced in the 1970s was a lot harder on people than this disaster has been this time around. The 19s, I remember the 70s. The 70s were tough. That was a tough-ass recession. And it, it really kind of like went through the first part, got a little bit better right in the middle, and then caved in. And, you know, it took most of the decade to get... Most of the 70s was a depression. We've actually been in a, in a recession now for three years. And it hasn't been that bad yet. 
It could get a lot worse. It could get worse than the 70s. But I don't even know if it's true. I know technically on paper with percentages of loss, it's the worst one. But when it comes down to people being able to have a job and put food on the table and things, I don't think it's as bad as 1976. Let's say it is. The big problem is it is nothing like the Great Depression at all. Seen anybody in a bread line lately? A soup line. Able-bodied male looking for work standing in a soup line. Now people will say, well, we have welfare now and unemployment and checks and all that. And there's, there's some truth there. But the reality is that most people that want to make enough money to, to stay in at least a small apartment and feed themselves can pull it off right now. They can pull it off going out cutting grass if they had to, or delivering pizzas. There is work. It's not glamorous work. It's not good work. It doesn't pay what people were used to, but they can find some kind of job. The Great Depression was totally different. When you were out of work, you were out of work. There was not a lot of jobs to be found. People were really, really hungry. Then we had the Dust Bowl come and compound the problem. It was bad, and it was bad in a way that we can't possibly comprehend as a people today. And this is the problem with the statement, the worst economic disaster since the Great Depression. That's sensationalism. What they're trying to do mentally, and America is very receptive to this, and it's important that you understand this, Mm -hmm. they are trying to create an affinity between our generation today and the generation from the Great Depression. Because when we think of the Great Depression, we don't think of the people as being weak, do we? We actually think of them as being very strong people. And we think of them as the same people that at the end of the Great Depression rose up as part of the greatest generation, as they're called, and fought World War II and did things that we can't even imagine. We actually look to the people that went through the Depression and came out the other side as American heroes. From the little old lady down the street that lived through it to our grandparents. We admire those people. So though we don't want the the recession to be here, we like hearing that we're like them even in a negative way. So that when we come out the other side, we'll think we're like them. This isn't like that. Let me tell you what I think a real second grade depression will look like. I believe Gerald Salenti's right, and one of the big aggravating circumstances will be a collapse of the commercial real estate sector. I see that becoming imminent in so many places. My economy in Dallas-Fort Worth is probably better than just about any economy anywhere in the United States right now, and I can tell you there's all kinds of brand new commercial buildings right now that are empty. And the ones that are filling up are emptying existing real estate. So what's happening is a guy that's in a strip mall that's 20 years old uh, finds out that they're hungry for new tenants at the brand new one that they just built uh, that's so much nicer and better, and he can get the rent for the same price because it's freaking empty. So he's moving, and they are putting some people in these, but then what is that doing to the existing real estate? It's leaving it to slums. I don't think we've really even begun to see the collapse of the commercial real estate sector yet. So I think that's where it begins. And it begins to spiral from there. And two factors come together. The, the acceptance by the world and our nation that we can't pay our debt back. And a, a lot of the debt that we owe is to our own people in the form of entitlements. And we have to start cutting entitlements. And that means cutting welfare. That means cutting food stamps. But you know what else it means cutting? It means cutting the, sal- the, the, the pensions of government workers. And before you say, ah, screw them. 
um, a lot of the government workers are your neighbors that actually work a legitimate job. You know, they're the person that when you need to uh, get someone to come out and fix the water pipe that broke in your street, that's the guy that drives around and does that and works long freaking hours to make sure the water still comes to your house. They're your soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines that serve this nation for 20 years. They're the people that work their entire lives paying all that money into Social Security. They're going to see their Social Security cut. We're going to have to cut the entitlement spending because we don't have the money. We can't even inflate to the point where we have the money. It's not possible. So those two factors, a commercial real estate collapse and an acceptance that entitlements have to be cut and taxes have to be raised, all come together and they put us into the depression. And we have to do it. Sooner or later we have to do it. The longer we wait to accept this and do it and take the pain and figure it out, the worse it's going to be when it happens. And when it happens, we will see the rebirth of the bread line and the soup line. You will see able-bodied people that are willing to work line up for charity because they don't have any other choice. You're going to see a nation where the crime rate will go up a lot. A lot. You'll see riots over food, over wages, over all kinds of things. Somebody will probably set some cars on fire somewhere. A city somewhere might burn. You know what won't happen? Patriots. If you haven't read the book, go ahead and read it. It's like watching a car wreck. It's a horribly written, wonderful book. I mean, that's the best way I can put it to you. What I'm saying, though, is you will not see the entire United States decay spiral down into oblivion. What you'll see is people will start to come together. You'll see a lot of things we've already seen go into overdrive. Backyard gardens, community get-togethers. In some ways, it may be the best thing that could ever happen to this nation. It will be terrible. Some people will die. It'll probably coincide with some level of disease outbreak because of declining sanitary conditions. There will be more crime. I'm not saying yay, but I'm saying it'll probably pull this nation back together and make us solidify and remember who we really are. In some ways, a second Great Depression is exactly what this nation needs. The nation needs to go bankrupt. I know you don't want to hear that, but when you have debt you cannot pay off, it is your only alternative. That's where the country is. We need to divest ourselves of a lot of debt. It'll ruin our credit rating. It'll take the dollar out of the place of being the world's recognized currency. Maybe, just maybe, this freaking nation will smarten up and go back to a commodity-backed currency. It'll suck. It'll probably take 7 to 10 years if we let it happen, and 20 years if they try to keep it from happening. But the other side of it is actually a positive. It really is. It'll be a nation with people like your grandparents in it again. I'm trying to get us there before it happens. That's my goal, to make us a nation like that again. At least some of the people in this nation like that again. Let's look at a solar storm taking out the electrical grid. This one's possible. I, this one's not even possible. It's it's damn well probable sooner or later. It's you know How much smart technology will we develop between now and the next time the sun gets angry 
pissed off and throws out a huge giant fireball of plasmic hatred at our planet and hits our atmosphere in just the right way to dump all that plasmic energy into our atmosphere and cause a bunch of really bad shit to happen. That's what it comes down. How long and how smart do we get before? Let's say it happens tomorrow. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to come home from work, and maybe it's, let's say it's later in the year when it starts to get dark earlier, and you look toward the northern sky, and let's say you're in somewhere like Georgia. Well, you don't really see the northern lights a lot of times in Georgia now, do you? Right? And there's this weird, pretty twinkling in the sky, and you think, oh, that's, that's odd, but that's kind of cool. And then the lights go out, and they stay out. And they stay out for a long, long time. Key components of the electrical grid are fried. Gone. No power coming back. How long will it take to get power back on? Everywhere? Ten years. Most places, a year to two. That's my best guess. Some places will actually be salvageable. Here's the thing. The concept that if this happens, we're going into the dark ages for a hundred years is nonsensical. Alright? What you have to understand is that in 1850, we didn't have an electrical grid. Okay? By 1950, we had a pretty damn good electrical grid. We went from not even knowing what an electrical grid was to a functional grid that serviced most of our nation in a hundred years. Today we have people that know what an electrical grid is. They know how to build one. They know how to make things to construct one. They know what copper frickin' wire is. If we can go from not knowing what one is to building one in a hundred years, we can damn sure rebuild one in a hell of a lot less time. What happens in between, though, is dark. It may be... Kind of the darkest scenario we'll, we'll see today. When the power's out everywhere, first thing that happens is people start dying due to climate, either cold or heat, one or the other, depending on what time of year it is. And it's old people and very, very young people and sick people that start to go first. This causes the people that love them to start panicking and doing something dumb like demanding the government turn the power back on and actually thinking that somebody up there could do it if they wanted to. It'll lead to riots. It'll lead to much bigger probably food shortages uh, and supply shortages than what we would have seen in, let's say, um, a pandemic. It's probably worse. Because everybody's mobile, nobody's afraid to go outside like a pandemic, and people just panic and start wiping things out. That said, it doesn't take electricity to get a truck from Florida to you know Pennsylvania. It doesn't take electricity to get a ship from China to Los Angeles. It does take electricity in a lot of these manufacturing facilities. Many of the companies... Uh, that are out there, will be able to operate for two weeks to a month, uh, though, and continue to manufacture with backup power because they have things like generators and backup systems. I don't think we realize how much redundancy for electricity is built into the corporate machines of the world, the big companies of the world, and how much of the work can be done manually if it has to. And in places like China, how much of the work is already done manually? 
Um, we can still harvest food. Processing, it's a different story. So what becomes the go-to food in this situation? Grains, rice, things like that. The stuff that everybody else in the world is already living on, folks. Because the problem with meat is it has to be refrigerated. can't just lay around. But yeah, I think that the electrical grid going down is the one that could lead us into a world where we start to have at least some pockets of things like they talked about in the book Patriots. Where we do have vigilanteism, we do have some roving hordes, gangs get together, and I think the actual gangs are the big threat. People like the Aryans, the Latin Kings, the Crips, the Bloods, uh, MS-13. These gangs are highly organized, highly loyal to each other, and highly armed. And I think in a, a lights-out scenario, man, that becomes a huge threat. I think that the threat is mostly going to be in the larger urban areas and then the suburban areas surrounding them where these people can go to, to take things. I think you'd be relatively safe in anything from small town to further out. Relative being the key term. Not that there wouldn't be problems everywhere because there would be. Overall, though, I do have faith in my nation and my people, and I think we would come together, and I think you would see a lot of vigilanteism that worked out in a positive way. You would see people organizing things into, like, volunteer sheriff's posses. You would see the strong help the weak. This nation is not as weak as they tell you it is. As long as we can keep each other fed and a roof over our heads, we'll stick together. As long as there's hope that the lights will come back on someday, then people will hold it together. If we get to a point where we don't believe we're going to get out of it, that's when you'll have the end of the world as we know it. That's when you'll have the real decline. And something else we should know about the electrical grid hit. Odds are, even with a really big solar storm, we wouldn't lose it everywhere. We would lose pieces and pockets of it. And as long as that happens, it could be really bad in the areas where it's down, it's going to be bad for the economy, we're going to deal with economic collapse, we're going to deal with shortages, but we're going to deal with them in a very manageable way. Because we have a, a place of safety to set up operations to create relief, repair, and recovery. The real scary shit is, let's say, it's North America, most of South America, Latin America, Europe, parts of Northern Asia, most of the Northern Hemisphere. And a lot of the southern hemisphere. It's a big one. That's that's when it's really bad. There's only so many places in the world where they can even manufacture transformers and things like that. The good news is this is something that we could get very good at avoiding. Simple things like shutting down parts of a grid in advance will save a lot of infrastructure. To building smarter equipment that will sense things and shut itself down will save a lot of infrastructure. But I want everybody to understand something. It's not possible to just go click and shut the power down everywhere without people dying and stuff blowing up. It doesn't work that way. So it's not as easy as, well, it's coming, just shut it down. There's sequences that have to be run. The smart type of shutdown that our government would probably do is to look at the areas that would be key for recovery and most at risk, and where the overlap is, shut down key sections instead of shutting everything down. Because you might create the disaster yourself by shutting everything down, and we can't just turn it all back on either. So if there was time to warn people it was going to happen, um, 
tell people where it was going to shut down, where it wasn't, get away from certain places. We could probably ride through it. And the smarter our technology gets over time, the better we'll get at doing that. But that's what I see from a solar storm. Let's talk about a global food shortage due to crop failures and other factors. This is something we're going to deal with. When and exactly how, I don't know. I'll tell you this, that it's already here, and there are places in the world right now where people have enough money, whatever currency that nation has, to buy food, but they can't get it. Um, the production of grain has failed to meet demand for seven of the last nine years. That literally means that in places in the world, people that could afford food in normal circumstances went hungry, not because they didn't have money or because they were poor, but because they were at the bottom end of the poor, so they had the least ability to bid for what was available. That's pricing, by the way. That's how pricing works. It's a bid. Everything is priced by bids, whether you realize that or not. And they were really people that had some money and still had less food than they wanted to subsist on. Most of them did manage to live, but they had some really lean times. They were actually hungry. I think it's very rare that most people in America know what it is to truly be hungry today. That's why I think a little bit of dirt time out there and, and actually testing your skills in the woods once in a while and going a couple of days on uh, just what you can scavenge and forage is good for us. It puts us in touch with what hunger is really like. I guess everybody's forgotten to eat lunch sometime or another and felt really hungry, but when I talk about being really hungry, I'm talking about the point where you actually get past that that goes away, and it actually feels better, and you get through the first bout of it, and then a day later, it comes back, and you're at a point where you'll eat anything, and when you finally do get food, you're barely even chewing it when you swallow it, you're gulping it like a dog. I don't think there's very many Americans that are aware of what it's like to be hungry like that anymore. Folks, during the Great Depression, people were aware of that. So a global food shortage depends on how bad it is whether we even care in this country. It could be something like we're experiencing now, and let's say it's 10 times worse. Or not 10 times, 10% worse. Uh, a little bit more realistic. Uh, our food prices go up a bit. We bitch about it. We complain. Uh, everybody still eats in this country. The really cheap stuff is still available, especially here, because of our economy of scale and our buying systems and our inventory control. And uh, people pay more for everything from ramen noodles to top round, top sirloin, you know, Ribeye, filet mignon. Pay for more for everything. That's it. That's one. And then there is the real food shortage. There's a food shortage when a nation like China that has to feed almost 2 billion people says, screw it, we're taking food. We're invading a few countries around here. Uh, or we're putting our, our force in, in place to where they're not going to give the food to the United States and Europe and Australia. They're going to give it to us. And they've done that already in some ways, but they've done it in a fair market way so far. What I mean is they've gone to countries and they've basically said, uh, how much uh, rice are you going to have available for export uh, in 2012, 2013, 2014, those three years? And the nation says, we forecast it to be X. And China has come in and said, we'll buy, we'll pay half of the money right now up front. Lock in the price for the rest of the time. We're going to buy all of it. If you exceed that level, we'll buy the surplus at an agreed upon price. And if you fail to meet it, we'll hold back uh, on some of the money due. So they basically formed exclusive contracts with quite a few countries. So that gets worse. India starts to do the same thing. These two countries have over half the world's population uh, between them. 
And that means there's less for us. Because one thing any nation, um, any, any people, any family, any father, any mother will do is feed their own before they feed the rest of the world. Fortunately, in the United States, we still do produce an awful lot of agriculture, but we don't have any diversity in it. We're really good at growing wheat, barley, uh, corn, and soybeans, but you can live on that. The biggest thing we would see in a global food shortage in the United States, if it was at all manageable for us, is a, a big return to the staples that everybody else lives on, those, those grains and those basic foods. And you also see skyrocketing food prices for luxuries, and that's why we make the change. Big food shortage. 50% of the crops fail for some reason. Um, we lose our aquifers. We can't irrigate. Our global agricultural production goes down by 50%. People in the civilized world all over the place begin starving to death with everybody else in the world that's already doing it. Everybody begins foraging, going into the forest, going into the highway medians, uh, finding anything and everything that's edible, Squirrels and cats disappear from our city streets, along with raccoons, possums, and skunks at that point. Tremendous pressure goes on to our game. Game laws are ignored. Put me in jail if you want to. At least you'll have to feed me. Either that or I'm going to feed myself on whatever I can get my hands on. People start eating Tweety Birds at that level. There are gardens everywhere, and there are thieves of gardens everywhere. Not only will you have, have a garden in your backyard, you'll have to protect it. Communities begin to come together with community gardens on a much larger scale, and people try to be self-sufficient, but we don't have the skills and the knowledge anymore. Sooner or later, the problem goes away. You say, how is that possible? There's two ways the problem can be solved. We reestablish the production, or enough people die that the production is adequate. It's a supply and demand thing. It's simple math. Harsh, yes. Awful, yes. Bad? Yeah. Sucks for us? Yep. But sooner or later, we have enough of a decline in the demand that the supply is no, now becomes acceptable. And we have enough people that are on the demand side become producers. Because it's either produce or starve. Interesting, huh? But that's how that one works out. Let's look at the last one, the realization of peak oil. This is a big one. This is one that people talk about all the time. People freak out about this one. I think it's actually one of the ones that we'll go through. Uh, there'll be some hard times, but we'll just basically get through it. I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. I think it has more of an economic impact than anything else. It's coming sooner than you think. It's coming sooner than you think. It's about a billion Chinese and about 800 million Indians that want cars that don't have them yet. If each of them only uses, <laughs> think about this, one gallon a day once they get their car, one gallon, all right, that is about 1.8 billion additional gallons of gasoline required a day. <clears throat> if only half of them end up needing it, it's 800 billion gallons, what, 900 billion gallons of additional fuel required or 900 billion I'm sorry I'm sorry 900 million gallons a day a day 900 million gallons a day almost a billion gallons a day if only half of those people get that new car and it's not just China and India you know and it's you know even little things like mopeds and all again when you add a billion people to something using a billion using even a half gallon 
There's countries all over the world that are evolving and they want the lifestyle we have in Europe, the lifestyle we have in the United States, the lifestyle people have in Japan. Now, you say a lot of these other countries use a lot more mass transit than we do. Yeah, but they have a lot of freaking cars too, folks. We're going to hit peak oil. Five years? Maybe. Tomorrow? No. Some people say we're already there. When I say hit it, I mean a point where everybody admits it. Because it's so obvious, no one can deny it anymore. Because if we're in peak oil, I'm sorry, gas shouldn't be $2 and you know, 70 cents a gallon or whatever it is right now. It should be 10 When we hit peak oil, then we really start to have to be bidding for oil. It's not OPEC setting the price. It's not pre political pressure in between. There is a literal shortage. If everybody runs everything at maximum output, still can't meet the demand. Prices skyrocket. That's when the economic factors start to hit. And they will be worse than the let's say, the, the, the overall, in general, survivability of the situation. What you're talking about is having to keep your thermostat on 80 instead of 72. Right? We're talking about a lot of people cutting down trees and, and putting in fireplaces or doing whatever they you know putting in wood-burning furnaces and burning anything, even if they don't completely heat their home with that, but supplementing their heating requirements. The beauty... Uh, I guess, though, for heating is that we have a massive supply in this nation of natural gas. So much, it's unreal. There's an ungodly amount sitting right underneath me, about a mile underneath my ass right now, called the Barnett Shale, that we actually get a royalty check for because we own the property and the mineral rights on it. And that's part of what's kept this economy going here in Texas, is there's a lot of people just like me that have a share in a gas well now. So natural gas can provide our heating, it can provide a lot of electricity, uh, and we can run cars with it. And you'll see natural gas become more a fuel of choice, especially for the United States. If we can get some politicians up there in Washington that see that light and stop screwing around with the rest of the world, because we are not involved with the rest of the world for oil. Oil is our excuse for being involved with the rest of the world. You want to write down one of my quotes once in a while. There's one to write down. I want you to think about that. We are not screwing around in Iraq for the oil. We are using the oil as an excuse so we can screw around in Iraq. Because we screw around with a lot of countries that don't have oil. We say we need the oil. There's not a country in this world that isn't happy to sell us all the oil we want to buy right now. They like selling us oil. You'd be shocked at how much oil we buy from frickin' Iraq. We're supposed to be enemies with Iraq. How much oil we buy from Venezuela. Where we get most of our oil isn't in the Arab nations, and it isn't from Venezuela. We The, the biggest importation we do is from Canada and Mexico, folks. Saudi Arabia, too. They're all, the three, but they're the three big ones. Most people don't realize that. Oil comes from Mexico. Lots of oil comes from Mexico. Most of the most of the oil that's uh, refined in the southern United States is coming from Mexico or offshore drilling. So peak oil, we could get through that one. You see the rise of alternative energy. You see uh, greater dependence on natural gas. You see more and more wind projects, more and more solar projects. Uh, but you see a lot of pain in the middle. And I'm saying start the path now for yourself. Start looking for ways to supplement your energy requirements today while everything's in abundance. 
This will be the easiest time to do it. And that will give you kind of a leapfrog head start on everybody else. But peak oil, we get through that one. Peak oil actually becomes a meaningless event when we decide we don't need oil for energy anymore. Or we don't need oil as such an exclusive source of our energy anymore. You won't see things like diesel trucks go away for a long, long time. The efficiency of what one gallon of diesel fuel can do is amazing. But everybody everywhere having a gasoline-powered vehicle cannot be sustained. Even if it's sustainable for 50 years. Folks, 50 years. Seems like a long time, doesn't it? How many people do you know that are in their 50s or older? To have a human lifetime, it's coming. Be prepared for it. That's kind of a gloom and doom show, isn't it? Not what, maybe what you're accustomed to here. So let me give you, and, but there was some hope in there, wasn't there? Every one of these disasters that's supposed to be the end of the world as we know it, I see us coming out the other side. And I actually see us coming out the other side stronger. That doesn't mean we don't prepare. See, the danger with telling people that if they're not preppers is they say, well, everything will work out anyway. But not for you as an individual, man. I'm not saying that just because the human race will survive a pandemic that you won't end up in a mass grave because they can't afford to bury everybody in a plot anymore because it's too many bodies. I'm saying that you got to be ready for this stuff. But it's not hard. Even the food stuff. Even if we had two years of a food shortage, if you can go three months into that without being hungry because you've stored food, you'll figure out how to get your next three months worth of food. Food shortages become a real problem when you don't have anything to eat tomorrow. Store some food. Electrical problems, you know, the, the grid going down, have a generator. We're more likely to have rolling blackouts, extended blackouts from something like that than the grid being completely gone. EMP attack could happen. That's a different scenario. We didn't talk about that one today. We talked about a natural occurrence taking out the grid. Strategically done, an EMP is a bigger effect. Maybe we'll talk about that in an upcoming show. But all of these things, if you're just simply doing the things we talk about every day, you're not going to like welcome them with open arms. You're not going to be overjoyed and happy. You're not going to be fat and happy. You'll probably lose some weight. Hey, we could all, probably all lose a pound or two. It'd be all right. I know I could lose a few more. By the way, those of you that make fun of my beer gut, I've lost 27 pounds this year, so go screw. Um, <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there because one jerk, I guess he has some homosexual tendencies or something and wants me to look better for him, always throws in nasty comments on YouTube. Anyway, we, we can get through this stuff. We, we, we really can. We really can. We can get through this stuff as a people. But the people that will be able to help guide others through it, that will be able to stand up in their communities instead of run away and actually help their neighbors are going to be the ones that don't have to worry about whether they're going to feed their children tonight or not. You want to help your neighbor get through it, you got to get through it yourself. And we do have to be prepared to defend ourselves. I don't want to paint too rosy a picture of this. If crime rates double, you'd be surprised what that means and how dangerous a society we have with a crime rate that doubles. You know, if, if, I, I think most people don't realize how dangerous it is to walk around the streets of London right now. And having even that kind of danger here in the United States, that's bad news. You better have a gun. You better be trained in how to use it. You better carry additional methods of defense. I've said I think a knife is a terrible defensive weapon, but it is a weapon of last resort. I don't go anywhere where I don't carry, and I also carry a knife. And I also carry pepper spray. 
Different tools for different scenarios. Make sure you have them and you know how to use them. Make sure you're aware of what the hell's going on. I don't watch as much news or read as much news as a lot of folks think I probably do. Because there's so much bullshit in the news. But I pay attention to this, these types of things. Is there a solar storm brewing? Yeah, right now. Do I think it's going to take out a grid? No, but if it was, I'd be screaming it, folks, this is going to be bad. Is there a pandemic brewing right now? Yeah, we'll probably have swine flu too. Uh, when we go into the fall this year, it'll probably come back and be a quarter of what it was, and the World Health Organization will probably freak out and tell us it could mutate this time, right? And uh, as we throw away billions of dollars worth of vaccine that was produced for no reason at all, because you and I told them to go screw, we weren't taking their rushed vaccine. And none of us died anyway, because we realized that, hey, you know what? This is no worse than any other flu. Um, but I don't see evidence of anything that's imminently coming, but I pay attention to it. That's something you have to do as well. You have to pay attention to the potential for these things. You also have to think about them. What would I do type mental scenarios? Right now, Jack just says, hey, folks, this flu is real this time. And you look out your door and people are, you know, starting to actually, you know, hoard supplies. What would I do? It's hard for a lot of people to do this. Because it's awful to think about the fact that your child could die from the flu. Happens every day somewhere in the world. The child dies of some some insignificant illness. Well, that insignificant illness mutating to a point where it has a high lethality rate is a possibility. No one wants to think about this stuff. You know, you don't want to do it all the time. You know, get yourself a good fiction book and read for 10, 20, 30 minutes every night before you go to bed. Clear and deprogram your mind. Go into a little bit of fantasy every night. Do it. I've just started. It was one of the tips I picked up from Tim Ferriss's book. And I've I've stopped reading stuff on the economy and and in you know uh, politics and disaster at night. I don't read that crap anymore. When I sit in bed with my Kindle now, I read stuff like uh, Dan Brown novels and things like that, and I pull myself out. But occasionally you've got to look at the abyss. Because it's the most important thing you'll ever do. It's more important than anything you store. It's more important than your garden. It's more important than your emergency supplies. It's more important than your blackout kit. It's more important than your generator. It's more important than everything. And the reason it's more important, it doesn't matter what you have if you don't know what to do with it and if you're not prepared to act. So think about these scenarios. Determine for yourself, what would I do? Where would I go? If I stayed, what measures would I take? How long could we pay all the bills if neither one of us were going to work because we thought it was too damn dangerous? Shut all the lights off. Shut everything off in your home except your refrigerator and freezer. Leave them running. Pretend they're not. Do it for a day. See what it's like. Cook all your food on the grill. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a week. See how long a propane tank actually lasts. Do you have enough of them? Run scenarios and run drills. Make them part of your life. Enjoy them. Johnny, you can't play freaking video games tonight. We're doing a dark out drill. Let's play freaking Yahtzee. Your kids will bitch until the dice roll the third time on the board and they realize it's actually fun. Take that time. Prepare yourself now. Because, as I always say, we only do things that are beneficial even if nothing goes wrong. 
America, you could do with occasionally shutting off all the crap in your house, firing up the barbecue, and even pitching a tent in the backyard. America, you need this. America, you could do with saying, you know what, the production in the garden's heavy right now. We won't have everything we need. But for 48 hours, we're going to run a drill. We're not going to maybe even say, here's two or three items that we can pull from that are not from the garden. We're going to eat 100% from our garden for two days. Be a good cleansing diet for a lot of people. And it would show you, is your production at the level that you think it is? And maybe a few less tomatoes would rot on the vine in the time of the year where you're in high production and you don't get around to canning or dehydrating them. America, you could do with a fishing trip with your children where you eat what you catch, even if they're small little bony fish. America, you could do with a walk in the woods with your children and teach them that is poisonous. If you eat it, it will kill you. That will make you itch. This will keep you alive. America, you could do with all of these things, even if we never need them. But I'm also here to tell you, someday, we're going to need them. And you may never need them in your lifetime. But if you don't give them to your next generation now, when you're gone, and you haven't passed these skills on, and you haven't passed this knowledge on, and the, the generation running things, and the generation that's even in the old folks' home at that point, doesn't know them, who is going to do it? Then, when your grandchildren are running the companies of the world and you're dead and you didn't act, who's going to teach them? Well, not your kids, because you didn't teach them. That's why we have the Revolution is You, folks. That's why, you know what? There's this young kid. If you watch the Revolution is You video again today, you'll see me and it standing with this young kid at the Hoods Woods get together. Young kid named Mike. He's 19 years old. Uh, he's a blacksmith by trade, going to school to learn how to be a, a, a jewelry maker. Knows what he wants. It's awesome. Kid's going to be an entrepreneur. I can see it. I didn't put that picture in there because I was in it. I put that picture in there because he was in it. And he's a huge fan of the show, and I knew it would mean something to him. Well, he emails me. He says, thanks so much. He said, and I really didn't do anything. I just, you know, kind of went to the Hoodwoods thing and hung out with you and taught other people what blacksmithing was all about. I thought, Don't you understand? That is something. That's incredible. 19. And this kid's passing on an old skill that we might need again someday. And showing other people, hey, you don't have to take the path everybody tells you to. Yeah, I'm going to go to college, but I'm going to learn a skill in college. I'm going to go out and market my skill, and I'm going to own something. I didn't do anything. <laughs> America, you know what else you could use? You could use a dose of the humility that that young man has to have done that much at 19 and not think he's really done anything yet. We could use that as well. We're going to be okay. We're going to get through all of these scenarios. And anything else anybody can throw at us, short of a comet that ends all life on Earth, we as human beings will band together and we will get through and we will survive. But we're going to do it with some fundamental things that we're beginning to lose. I don't want them lost. I want them recouped. Think about that today as you move on through life. 
Think about that every time you think about doing something a little extra and you just feel like, ah, oh, not right now, not today. Act. Do it. Make an impact. Teach those skills to your kids so that they can teach them to your grandkids. And your grandparents out there, if you have to skip a generation to get it done, teach the grandkids. They're receptive. They'll listen. They're not working 80 hours a day right now. And make sure you teach them, hey, you have your own kids, pass this stuff on. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.